All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to our weekly uh, stream. My name is Johannes Verweinen. I'm a instructor for deepdives.eu, the acronym is in development, data analytics, machine learning. And with me, I've got, as always, my friend Mikko with a similar background. Hi there. Welcome. Thank you. So our um, topic for today that I picked my turn this time, is uh, MLA. And um, the idea here was that we had a talk on DevOps not too long ago, where we talked about what that actually means, um, what the generic parts of, of that are. Uh, and then I thought that, it, it, that you know the time might be ripe to try to extend that into MLOps, um, this might also sometimes be called data ops or, or AI ops, but the idea is you know, roughly uh, to take the same kind of, of um, operations procedures and best practices into the machine learning world. And um, Mikko, if, if I can, can ask you, what? what what is your kind of view on MLOps? What does what, what is it in your uh, opinion? Then we can you know start from there. That that's a good question for a person who doesn't know about that too much, uh, and I hope I hope you will clarify this this whole thing today. I'm here to ask stupid questions, beginner questions from you, but my understanding is that MLOps is something similar to DevOps. It solves a problem of of uh, having many different complicated things that need to be stitched together to have some sort of a process which is uh, manageable. Exactly. Something like that. Yeah. So, was it even close? Yeah. So, so the the reasoning why do we need MLRs is similar to why do we need DevOps. Like the, when when we talk about DevOps, we talked about the the kind of old way of doing software, which had problems in it. Um, and then DevOps kind of tries to solve those problems by introducing methodologies uh, into, into the process. And MLOps is, is roughly the same thing. Um, it's just much younger, right? So it's not too long ago when, when uh, kind of machine learning projects were, were kind of literally moved from a data scientist's laptop into a production environment like without any proper software development methodology. Sounds like the way we did software back in the 90s. Exactly. And it's exactly the same thing, but, but just kind of more recent. And the reason Except for that is- Except we didn't have laptop back then. <laughs> no, there was more exhibitions here, right? But, but yeah, so, so it, it, the reason is kind of similar that um, the data scientists, and, losing the term, using the term kind of loosely here. Um, but, but the people who were working with machine learning uh, very often had no prior um, like uh, professional um, background. So, so they would have been working with machine learning at universities, working on research projects and so on. And then they would kind of lack the kind of process that we are used to when doing software development. So of course, we, we all know that, that what that results in, it's going to be uh, huge problems. 
And um, this is not to take anything away from the data scientists. They are wonderful people. And uh, uh, I might include myself as, as one of them. But the idea was that the methodologies that people used, like uh, working with a data set on your laptop in uh, MATLAB or R, don't really translate into creating a production-ready machine learning you know, service or anything like that. So, so that was kind of uh, uh, one of the, the, the big problems. And of course, everybody, or, or, or very often these projects would succeed still, right? So, so people would be able to, to create a production version. Um, I have, I know how to run MATLAB as a server. Uh, I know how to run R as, as a server as well. Um, but we're kind of missing a lot of the things that we're used to from the software development world. You know, this kind of uh, idea of the server being always on, right? So if in case it crashes, it would just restart. Well, that doesn't happen automatically <laughs> in that uh, environment. Um, and then we would, we would, these deployments would also be kind of one-time deployments. There would no, be no kind of uh, iterations uh, with the, all of the iterative stuff would be happening on the laptop. And then kind of once we're happy with with the machine learning model, I guess, or, or how it's working with some test data, then we kind of freeze everything and deploy that into the production environment. And then we never update it again. And as we know, projects don't work like that, right? So, so in, in, in machine learning, the world changes, models need to be updated, and so I, I have one point there that when back, back or probably still, well, not anymore, but when when you had your, like in the 90s or before that, you have had electronics, those like computers or radios or whatever, those were built just like that. Yeah. They were built once and then they went into production, something was produced and delivered and they you, you weren't able to update them at all afterwards. Exactly. So we have had processes that actually work like that and pretty well. I guess. But then yeah. came software and you were able to just deliver whatever into production because you basically knew that you can update it later on. Right? Yeah. So 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 with machine learning however there is a one uh, very important uh, thing that happens uh, which doesn't happen with software that's mm -hmm. concept drift. Concept drift. So the idea is that um, you have trained your model at time t uh, with the data then. However, at time t plus something, the world is different. So the sample data that you used for training your model might not be a good sample of the modern world anymore. Think about like stuff like uh, next sales offers. With, uh, let's say that you're in what, what kind of time frame you're talking about here? Like uh, a week, a month? Anything. Yeah. Depends on the basic software. The does with software, the world does change as well. Laws changes, and the, so so basically that kind of happens with software as well. But probably it's must much. much uh, it happens much more fast with yeah, the, the kind of problem with machine learning um, bias drift uh, or passive drift is that. Um, it's difficult for us humans to, to 
to see, right? So, so in the software world, we kind of know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the specification changes or... Yeah, yeah. but like, I have an example here. So, so like, let's say that you're an e-commerce store and you sell um, iPhones, right? So previously, um, iPhones came with a charger, both the cable and the, the physical charger. But then at some point, Apple actually stopped adding that charger to the iPhone package. So if you're an e-commerce store and you have a machine learning model where you want to you know, uh, give people um, uh, a good deal on some add-ons once they have bought their iPhone, the, the old model would be, I don't know, um, suggesting some wireless headphones or something like that. Whereas the, the model, the new model should clearly suggest a charger, right? Because that's going to be the most used traditional uh, uh, utility for, 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 the, for the iPhone. And this is just due to the world changing. So if you've trained your model based on old data, you would see that nobody buys a charger with an iPhone. People only buy it afterwards once the, the one they have is broken or something like that. Whereas nowadays, quite a lot of people need to buy a charger with their iPhone. So the world has changed. So you need to retrain your machine learning model. And these changes are quite subtle. So it's kind of... It changes a little by little, day by day. More and more people yeah. want to have a charger with their phone as well. Yeah, and it's, it's really difficult for us like, uh, to, to figure that out. Uh, what the change has been, or whether there has been a change. So, so this again goes back to observability. But kind of that's kind of the motivation why we in machine learning we really need to have in place the mechanism to be able to update the model. And now, if that original model was trained on some data scientist's laptop, do we have? Was no longer in... working in the company anymore. Yeah. Right. And that's why we need NOPS to, to kind of define these. Um, so, um, so here's a here's a stupid question: uh, When, why don't you just update the the model all the time? Because it costs you. Okay. Like, why fix it if it ain't broken? Yes, but it's favorite. changing all the time. When, how do you determine at what point you want to uh, update your model? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. So, so this goes to kind of observability of uh, machine learning. Let's see if I have. And tell me something. when my questions are uh, off topic from the MLOps point of view. No, they're not. They're not at all. So, so I think this is a uh, life cycle end to end. So you're talking about monitoring and logging here. Mm -hmm. The top right, let me try to zoom this a bit. This is a nice uh, website, ml-ops.org. Um, so the top right-hand side over here, monitoring and logging. And you can see that there's something here called a model DK trigger. So what we can do very often is um, we can try to figure out how well our machine learning model is doing. And now the problem here is that we, we often don't have a feedback channel. Think about something like a credit card fraud, right? You're, you're trying to, from all credit card transactions, flag the ones that are likely fraud. The, the problem with your prediction is that you don't know whether it was true or not. Because if some fraudulent transaction comes in, it takes quite a while 
for the customer to complain. You know, it could be like a month before they get the bill and then yeah. they figure it out and then they complain. So the feedback cycle is very, 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 very long. So we can't use that as our metric on how well our model is doing. But what we can use is a couple of other things. So first, first of all, we can use the distribution of our predictions. That should be static. If our distribution of predictions changes, then something has changed in the world, right? And of course, here we need to take uh, noise into account. So if it has changed dramatically, and sometimes that's not even good enough. Sometimes we actually take a look at the incoming requests. So, so how uh, do the distributions of the incoming requests change over time? And then that could give us the, the trigger. Okay, something has today now changed because now we get a very different distribution of requests than, than when we were training the uh, model itself. So that's what, 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 what is kind of triggering this um, workflow or pipeline. And that, that, that gives me the possibility to start to, to go through the pipeline, if, you, if you're okay with that. Mm -hmm. so, so in a machine learning uh, pipeline, um, we're very often uh, detaching the data pipeline from that. So that's here in uh, yellow, right? The data pipeline is kind of its own beast. It, it has problems like uh, how can we access the data um, that we need for training? What kind of transformations we need to do that to that data to clean the data? It might be a uh, dirty to start off with so so that's kind of its own process over here and in theory we can say that we're getting more data as the world goes on and the data pipeline works by uh, you know updating the data into our data repository but we don't necessarily always use that new data for training Right? If our machine learning model is already working correctly, then we're just in the data world over there. And then basically, when we get this trigger that we want to retrain our model, then we go through the, the training pipeline. So this is roughly in, uh, what is this, orange or red over here, where we, we train the model um, using maybe uh, previously known parameterization. And then we tested the model. And then during that testing, we make sure that it works better than the currently working version. Right? And this, of course, is always dependent on the test data that is being used. So we want to make sure that the test data is representative of the current work. The training data can com be combined of both the, the, the past world and the current world, but the, the testing data should always be with the current world. And then it, it might be that the world has changed so much that just adding more data you know, doesn't fix the problem that has come up. So in that case, we then might need to do some model engineering as well. So maybe change the, the algorithm, uh, maybe change some hyperparameters so in such a way that we get um, a reasonable 
model uh, out of that again, a model that works better than the uh, current version. And now previously, this would be do, done, this would have been done manually, right? So, so like a data engineer would have been called and they pull up their laptop and then they type a lot. And then something comes Mistakes. Out. Yes. Use incorrect now, parameters and yeah. Exactly. But now with ML apps, the idea is that all of this happens automatically. So, so the data itself um, can be in a uh, system called a feature store. So, so any new data that comes in through the data pipeline automatically gets added to this feature store, which is kind of a versioned um, repository of the training data that you've been using. Um, and that then allows you to also do comparisons, right? So, so you can always redo the training on the exact same data set that you did previously. So, so you can see how some model engineering has actually affected your model independent of the data changes. So that's important. And then the other thing that is very important is that the, the, the model that we're creating when we're doing the machine learning uh, also goes into a, an artifact repository. The question, would, you, would the data go to the feature store at the point of time when you realize that, okay, Things have changed, or would it go there all the time? How how does it, it get to the feature store? It depends on how you want to to do it. So generally speaking, um, having data in a feature store might be more expensive than having it in your data. So so you could have your data pipeline just dump the data into a data lake, and then pull it into the feature store whenever you're doing the update, or you could have the data pipeline go all the way to the feature store uh, as well. Kind of depends. On Independent of what is happening in the other parts of yeah. Yeah, I, so I the was data just wondering. Independent from the machine learning pipeline, but they have this integration point. Yeah, which is either. A I, data I was just wondering about the the since data uh, storing data uh, costs you, exactly. and if you choose the correct way to store the data, it's less expensive, but if it's something that needs to be active, then it costs a little bit more. And if you're versioning ridiculous amounts of data, then that will actually cost you cost you something. Yeah, but versioning of data in a feature store is basically additive. Okay, so, it so it's not so like- The versioning uh, is kind of selecting which parcels of data you're, you're using for the training job. That's, that's good. Yeah. So, so then we have still left this blue part. So that's kind of the traditional DevOps part. So, so, so there um, we have some code that is then going to be part of the deployment. This depends um, on, on how managed your environment is. Like the, all of the cloud providers have managed uh, environments where you, you actually don't need that blue part at all. Basically just uh, take the model and then give it to cloud provider service, and then it will make it available for you. Um, but in case you're integrating this maybe into a mobile device or something like that, then of course you would have um, code as well. And we have this kind of integration point where when either the code or the model changes, we then need to redeploy that model uh, onto our endpoints, basically. Like edge devices even, or? 
could be HD devices as well. Yeah. yeah. So quite a lot of this is happening now, especially with Gen AI. Um, a lot of the uh, providers have come up with these smaller, large language models. So I don't know. Small, large language then? model. Yeah. yeah, it's like a medium language model then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? So to, to fit them onto uh, phones and, and mobile devices and do local inference. Yeah, yeah much better uh, usability then. Or yeah. I don't know much better, but better usability if it's basically instant yeah. compared to. So there are a couple of points here that we can use to uh, trigger the, the retraining of a model. So like I said, we can use the, the data that we get from the um, production environment. So, so there we need to have something in place that is constantly looking at the distribution of the incoming requests and the distribution of the outgoing um, um, predictions. Um, and and in addition to that, when you say distribution of the incoming requests, do you mean that like the content of the requests or or yeah. the, the the frequency of when they come in the or content? Okay. The content. Content. Now we lost Mikko. Apparently. <laughs> I guess it's okay for us to learn uh, about how this actually works and then uh, what kind of problems we can get into uh, with this. But yeah, so, so where was I? I was in in us uh, explaining how we know that our model is no longer um, current. And one of the options, like I said, is, is just basically to, to, to log all of the incoming requests or predictions, and then also to log all of the predictions. And then to see how that distribution changes um, over time, when there is a large change, then that would, of course, mean that uh, we would be uh, interested in maybe updating our, our model. Another place where we can take a look at this is, is actually in the data pipeline. So, so similarly, that we can take a look at how the uh, incoming requests change. We could also try to take a look at, at how the, um, the training data change. So if there's a big change here in the data pipeline, then that might give us an idea of the world having changed and, and us needing to do some kind of retraining. Yeah. So ML Ops is a kind of a way for us to move away from the idea of just doing machine learning as a project on, on uh, single users, laptop and stuff, and, and moving towards a more structured methodology, uh, similarly to what DevOps is using. And we can actually see some commonalities here. So we have this uh, pipeline, which is where we have multiple pipelines. Right. So we have. Yeah, there we go. Let's see if my microphone is working. Uh, yeah, seems to okay. be working. So we have pipelines. So, so similarly to a CI/CD pipeline in DevOps, we have a separate data pipeline where we're 
ingesting data, transforming it, making it ready for, for machine learning. We have a separate machine learning pipeline where we're training a model uh, for, from a specific set of data. And then we have separately a deployment pipeline that then deploys that model together with any kind of code into the uh, production environment. So, so similar uh, things. There are other things in DevOps that don't really make much sense here. Uh, things like microservices don't really work. Um, however, other things like infrastructure as code, it's very important here as well. We're trying to uh, make sure that the machine learning uh, project itself is not really dependent on, on a single user or, or the knowledge of just, just one person. Or manual operations of single users. Yeah, so it's so using kind of standard. Right. Yeah, it's a, so, so the cloud providers are good in, in, uh, in that, that they basically require you to standardize how to deploy your machine learning. Yeah. So, so uh, that gives us this kind of uh, security with regards to production deployments. So this sound, really sounds like DevOps. Kind of, yeah, right? It's like the concept of and, and the reasoning why you have this, uh, or, or parts of the reasonings are like, you know, yeah. you, you don't want individual people doing uh, random things, maybe correctly, repeatedly, week after week, or especially if, if that something happens one month later or, or half a year later, you don't realize all the individual steps that you actually did last time. You don't remember exactly. them and you make mistakes. And that's at least that problem probably gets solved with. with and that kind of part, the kind of part of making machine learning and enterprise ready um, technology. As previously, you know, even if the, the, the software stack would have been properly um, handled, these machine learning projects would be kind of Swimming against the current, would <laughs> mm. <laughs> be like crazy people with long beards installing weird packages onto servers. <laughs> that would be. <laughs> uh, how about then uh, uh, the high availability? If if you do, if you're a single person individually deploying something into a production, it sounds like that you're deploying a server or something into a server. But but you want to have if it's a production ready system then you probably have to have high availability. And that makes immediately things quite complicated from, well, if, from the manual labor point of view. Yeah, if you again, do things manually. Yeah, that, that's kind of why I'm saying that the cloud providers have made this um, better because they define different kinds of product that then do the machine learning model hosting. And they even have high availability built in so uh, it, it goes away from the domain of the, the actual data scientist. It's, it's just part of the platform um, yeah. nowadays. Similarly, then uh, durability for the data and all of this stuff. And a lot of things like when we're deploying, um, uh, it's, it's done in uh, using, using technologies that are well known from DevOps. So, so we do things like uh, blue-green deployments. Um, however, in machine learning, because of the, the slowness of the feedback, um, it might actually be that we're doing something called shadow testing. You've ever heard of that? 
That's a new term for me. So shadow testing means that we're running two uh, versions of the model simultaneously, a little bit like blue-green deployments. And we're only replaying the requests that come to the production model to the new model. And then instead of giving back the predictions to the user, we use statistical analysis to see how they differ from the previous version of the model. And then we can try to think whether we want that difference or, or whether something has gone totally wrong. So, so that's kind of one of the differences you can see. But that long, long feedback loop uh, is, is a challenge. In many things, I guess. Yeah, yeah but that's that's exactly why we uh, use these shortcuts. Um, uh, but maybe it's we, not with every project, right? Depending on what you are trying to predict with ML. Yeah, exactly. So, so like if you do add positioning, then you have a fast feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So the, the way add positioning works is that um, uh, an add uh, framework will predict which ad you would most likely click based on your, whatever they know about you, and then they display that ad. Um, and then if you don't click on it, then they immediately have the negative feedback. So it's like five seconds, and that's it. So, so uh, very different from like a print card fraud uh, thing. But, but we actually, this is a, one of my favorite topics in, in DevOps as well. Very often, the, the KPIs that we actually want to improve are not directly measurable. Like with an e-commerce um, site or, or maybe even a video site like Netflix, um, what we want to improve, like for an e-commerce, is the amount of uh, uh, turnover, so sales, uh, but no returns, right? So we, we know the amount of sales fairly quickly as people go and click through. But then people could always cancel their orders or maybe return it. They didn't like it after all, so on. So those are, are kind of slower things. But we know that the sales itself um, gives you an idea, right? It gives you a pretty good approximation. And we, have, we actually have even better approximations, like even faster approximations. In e-commerce, we have latency. So we know that the longer it takes to produce a page in an e-commerce site, for the end user, the less likely they are to buy anything. So we can use these kind of shortcuts, these kind of technical uh, metrics to, to try to predict unintended the actual uh, metric. And there are these shortcuts available in, in different fields uh, um, always. And then we maybe try to look at those. Of course, testing that hypothesis that it actually does have an effect on the actual <laughs> metric that we want to. The other thing that while we're at the topic and we still have some time left, one of my favorite things, or two of my favorite things regarding machine learning projects. One, does it need machine learning? So th this is no longer as, as important as before, but like 10 years ago when machine learning was the new hype thing to do, you will get people from the, the top of a company, like the, the managers, saying that, can we please add some machine learning to our product? And then you're like, 
it doesn't need any machine learning. Yeah, yeah it sounds familiar. Yeah, so a lot of AI, remember, is, is not machine learning based. The majority of AI is search based. That's not machine learning. So, so just kind of think when a, a thing comes in, um, does it need machine learning or can it just be solved using a simpler? And then the second thing is, when you're starting the project, make sure that you know your target. Like, uh, let's say that we're doing fraud detection. Mikko, uh, do you mean, by, by target, do you mean like the metric that you're trying to improve or? Exactly. So, Mikko, you are, you are now the new manager of Mikko's bank's credit card department. And we have a, you are buying from me a fraud detection system. Mm -hmm. So what is the metric that you want to optimize? Uh, I'd like to have less fraud. Perfect. I can give you a solution that will give you zero fraud. And I know that you will just uh, put uh, shut down the website that, that uh, generates sales and then there's no fraud. No, no, no. I will actually make a machine learning model for you that will just always say for every single transaction that it is fraudulent. That you will get zero fraud because you block those. So you need to know what is more important to, and this probably, and I know this depends on the on your on your field where you're operating in, but you want to minimize false. Well, it depends what you want to minimize. Exactly. Do you want to have more sales, or do you want to have less less fraud, or you want to increase sales and have less fraud without then blocking those legitimate sales? By false, falsely detecting them to being as fraud. So, what what would you say if if I'm my my company is selling uh, cameras, like uh, digital cameras? So, what would be the correct? You, you will ha now have to educate me since I'm a manager. I don't know anything. And <laughs> then then you say that yeah, but you just have to give me a metric, and I'm I, I'm I don't know the metrics. So you have to very briefly explain to me so I can make an informed decision. Yeah, so, so what you want to do is you want to minimize the, the truly fraudulent uh, transactions uh, while maximizing the non-fraudulent transactions. And now this is not a, a binary decision. So, so uh, the model, in, in this case, most likely it's going to be a, a binary classification uh, problem. And a lot of the, the problem um, solutions actually give you a propensity score uh, or maybe a probability of how likely this is to be fraudulent, how sure this model is mm. that this incoming transaction is fraudulent. And, and then you can experiment, like, like see how much risk are you ready to take for a fraudulent transaction to come through while still leaving enough of those. Uh, um, for example, I'm probably okay if if my sales increases by uh, tenfold and I get two extra frauds there, then maybe that's okay. Exactly, and and that's what what needs to be done. And, uh, okay, and give me an example of a field where you want to uh, just have absolutely no mistakes, uh, and so that every fraud or what whatever the thing is that you're trying to catch is caught. Healthcare is an easy one here. Mm -hmm. so if you have a, a system, like there, there are these um, 
uh, image recognition systems that try to look at uh, x-rays or, or MRIs to find tumors in them and then figure out whether the tumor is, is uh, malicious or, or benign. So there you want to err on the, on the side of malicious, right? So, so all of the things that are clearly not a problem, the, the automated system will take care of. And then if there is even a, a little bit of a doubt of, of whether it could be a malicious tumor, then send it to a manual process, to a mm. radiologist. And actually, if someone was like in the past, this was done manually, everything was done manually, then uh, that, that was not that, I don't know what's the, I, I tried to not use the, 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 the correct words here, but that was not that accurate. Meaning yeah. that uh, since you have a lot of uh, x-rays or whatever images you have to go through, you make, eventually you will make mistakes because you have to go through thousands of images and there's, but nowadays, could it be that the, the machine learning algorithm is, more, is even better catching those problems than humans? Yeah, so there are some, some use cases, uh, I don't remember the exact details, where the machine learning algorithm has been better than the doctor in finding those um, uh, problems. But this also has to do with, with psychological factors. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like, let's say that you're a doctor and, and you, you're like, there's like 1% chance of something being there that shouldn't be there. So you only only one of the 100 pictures that you look at will actually have that. So, so we as humans, we get tired with those kinds of situations. There's, um, and it's always going to be nothing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lose concentration. Now, if the machine learning algorithm can take even just half of those clear cases away from you, then you're already more alert because there's going to be more of those. This makes so much sense. Just like the screening process in the airport at, at the airports. <laughs> yeah, they are not that often. Well, in in Finland at least, there are not that many guns going through the through the the X-ray or whatever whatever the technology is nowadays that they are using. But, but so they actually insert images of of weapons and, and things that you need to catch into the stream of images that the the people yeah. have to watch at or look at so to keep you alert. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of one way that uh, uh, kind of indirectly machine learning can also help. So it's not, not fair to, to compare what a doctor has been doing with like the whole set of data compared to what they're doing when, when they're being uh, resorted. But if we go back to the MLOps here, uh, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned there that part of the process is maybe when, when you, uh, it's the, is it now the model part, the, the, the biggest red text there. So you might have to change the model at some point. Yeah. And if I, I'm thinking this from like software development developer point of view, if you have a large project and then you, you, you have to refactor something, that's usually a big task and you are breaking a lot of things there while you're doing it and you have to fix them as well. So it's, it's usually not a, a trivial thing to refactor something, even okay. no matter how, careful you are there are always going to be mistakes and you have test cases and all that so how would you now if if you need to change the model let's say you are well, let's go back to the the fraud fraud part 
you have model X that is pretty good at uh, detecting fraud, but then there, there comes a new model from, from somewhere and it's much better at detecting just the kind of fraud that, that your business is, or my business, I'm the manager here. So yeah. my, my business is, uh, there's a camera fraud detector, <laughs> who's, which is very good at detecting the, the frauds in my field. So what would you then do? How does it work in an MLOps pipeline? What, what are the things that you would now have to do? So, so literally, there would be no change. Okay. Um, so the idea is that the, the pipeline is so generic that actually what uh, we're doing here when we're doing training is we're usually running some kind of container using a standard input and output definition. So it doesn't matter what algorithm you're, you're running inside there. Uh, and then similarly for the deployment, it's another container where we just put in the input and then we get out the output. Um, what is interesting here is that there are also containers um, in front, uh, like in a pipeline way, in front of and, and behind that training slash inference container that can then do data regularization, right? So if your training data has been cleaned or transformed in some way, maybe, you know, we've done some um, normalization of a particular field, then of course, when the request comes in, that data needs to have the same transformation done to it as well. So how do you do that? Well, it's just part of that container, right? So, so when you've done the trivial transformation, that same script written in pandas or something is going to run in front of every single um, uh, incoming, uh, in, in, incoming uh, data request or, or a prediction request. And then similarly at the end, like if you want to do some, some changes to what the model actually emits, then you can standardize it through to whatever you want to. This could be like the- This the is beautiful. beautiful. And I can immediately think that, okay, the, the model that you are, uh, the new model is maybe uh, outputting something that, that needs to be scaled. Maybe it's a, a numerical value that needs to be scaled so that it's compatible with the, whatever yeah. happens after the, after the, the predictions. So, so yeah, all of that should, should, should be, this really makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, so so that's kind of the uh, idea. So the only thing that really changes, uh, or that could change, is um, the environment, the infrastructure that you need for your model. So so when do we change models or, or algorithms? Well, usually that happens when our original model um, was a simple model, um, and and the world when the model was trained, uh, was simple. So it was complex enough to fit the data. We got good results out of it. Now, if the change in the world has not been such that the data has changed, but that the complexity of the problem has changed, then we might need to change the algorithm. Like we might need to go from linear regression to boosted uh, trees or, or forests, or, or maybe all the way to a neural network. Right? So then the complexity of our model becomes bigger. But that has nothing to do with the input and the output. Those are still going to be exactly the same. However, now it's going to take you longer to train that model. It's going to use more computation. Similarly, in the uh, inference space, it might use more computation to, to create the predictions. 
So there's this second level of you know, technical metrics that we are viewing uh, to make sure from an apps point of view that we get a good service for our end customers so that we don't get too much latency, for example, when doing predictions and so on. So, so that, that's kind of what we need to take a look at, specifically if you're making your model more complex than what it was before. It, it's cool stuff, right? And, yeah, uh, definitely. And this, the, the whole thing makes, uh, as a software developer, when, when I look in the, from the, with a software developer eyes, when I'm looking at this, this really makes sense to have a standardized environment with uh, clear, let's say, basically APIs that you're, you're, uh, you're invoking and then something happens after that. And yeah. This is very good. This is very good. And you could basically just do everything, all that, the, the data wrangling and all that. They, you could have just a huge, uh, imagine this was the 90s, we could have all this in one application that does this, everything in one go. And then you change something and you have to change a lot of things uh, in, in many different parts. Yeah, and this also makes this automation possible, right? So I don't know if you know AutoML. So basically, when we're doing uh, machine learning on machine learning, so instead of us deciding what algorithm to use or what transformations to make to the data, we just let the, the machine learning algorithm to do that uh, on our behalf. So, so then we can automatically trigger retraining based on some statistics changing. And then the auto ML part will try some different transformations of data, try a different model, more complex model automatically, and then decide which of the models is the best and then deploy it into, into production. And that's kind of why we need that API. For, for that, that's, uh, that's, that's again, that's beautiful and it's a little bit scary. And also uh, a, a little bit bad from, well, I don't know, bad, but, uh, Dangerous in that sense that uh, you get you get systems that that are basically black boxes and you have no idea what's happening inside. How about uh, I don't know if these are the correct words here, but uh, uh, like ethical con considerations, exactly. or or if if you're if you're trying to do uh, uh, you're creating credit ratings for people, yeah. and suddenly it's it could be that it's not it's it's not allowed or it's uh, prohibited by law that you have a model which just gets input yeah. and produces output and you have no idea why the output is what it is yeah. it could be the perfect predictor of someone's credit rating uh, but uh, credit worthiness but it could be illegal yeah that's that's exactly what um uh, has changed during the past 10 years so so the the role of a data scientist is, is no longer that, uh, that they are the experts on machine learning algorithms or how, what, what kind of tricks, what kind of hyperparameters you need to tweak to get the best result out of something. No, it has become to be an expert of explainability of the model, which is what you just said. So, so you, you, in some cases you need to be able, and you might even, even if you don't need to, you, you might want to understand why the model makes decisions. What the parameters are, and by so find bias in mm -hmm. in actually all phases of this workflow, 
bias could start with the incoming data that we have a bias distribution of, of data. It could come, it could be enhanced during training so that the bias is actually something that the model picks up instead of disregarding it when making decisions. Um, and then all the way to making the actual decisions and checking uh, when you're making predictions that bias doesn't happen. This is basically statistics, right? So, so we know how to do that. It's not like you need to watch at the numbers really, really, really closely and then do something. Uh, but, but rather, it's, it's statistical procedures that we can use. And, and that seems to be the, the new role of the data scientist. <coughs> Yeah, that's interesting. And this is actually one of the questions that I have on my on my uh, on my list is what what happens in the future, and uh, was it auto ML? So that's okay. kind of what is happening already. But it's this is probably the the future in that sense that it it will take a large role. But how about the future? Do you see some emerging patterns that where where this is where all this is going or? Is it about uh, better algorithms or uh, faster machines, uh, wider usage of ML? What do you well, think? Clearly, large language models are um, emerging or have emerged. So we don't really know what we can use them for. So this whole idea of um, em embeddings uh, and then tra transformations or transformer architectures. Um, it currently has been used for, you know, ChatGPT and image generations and so on. But there might be additional um, things that we can actually do with them. So, so kind of finding those um, where we maybe don't train the model with all of the text in the internet, but rather something else, could be fairly um, interesting. Because we can see that now we have some complexity in, in, the, in place that can solve lots of problems fairly easily. If we could use that complexity for uh, different kinds of problems, that would be really interesting. Uh, okay, how, how would one get started with uh, MLOps? What would you do? Take, take one of our trainings, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, but it, to be a bit more generic, how, when would you go into MLOps? If, so, if so you have a, if you have you you've uh, tweaked around with an algorithm that predicts something that might be useful for your organization, what 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 are the next steps? Yeah. So, oops, sorry, I didn't want to take you away. Um, so, so kind of what you need to choose is a framework. So there are multiple different kinds of frameworks for creating these uh, workflows um, and automate them. Um, now, depending on the cloud provider that you have, they might either have a uh, custom um, specific to that cloud provider uh, system in place that usually is easy to use and easy, easily integrated with everything else in that cloud provider. Um, or then very often they have like an open source option available. So you, you could do this orchestration using uh, Kubernetes. So there are frameworks available on top of uh, containers that you're then running in a Kubernetes cluster. And then there are more custom options 
for example, Apache Airflow is, is one of those where you rather write Java code to plug things together. Um, and then Airflow makes sure that that, that process gets run uh, properly uh, on your behalf. But similarly to CI CD pipelines, you know that there are multiple options available. Um, it's the same thing with ML ops. Uh, they're just a little bit more specific, you know, regarding data stores, artifact stores, and so on. Not as generic as CI CD pipelines, but you use them in a similar way. Um, and, and then you need to choose uh, basically your, your pick your poison. But all of the cloud providers have these available because it totally, like you said, it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. What else? Um, are we running out of time? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, let me figure out something else to ask you. It's um, a difficult question. Something difficult. Mm. What are the problems of MLOps? Are there any, any, uh, pitfalls or something that you, you would want to avoid? It's the same as DevOps, right? So, so, so building up the infrastructure for a project is fairly time consuming and complicated for the first time. Once you've built it up, then it runs. Yeah, that's the whole idea that it runs, right? Yeah. So, so finding the, the point when to go for MLOps is fairly important. If you're just running a proof of concept, it's not worth it, right? You're going to do work and then most likely it will get killed. But figuring out when you haven't gone too far into creating stuff uh, so that you can still adapt to an MLOps framework uh, and then doing that, having enough time for that in your project schedule and all of that is. is Again, from the software development point of view, I I know that once you, once you have built something, then it's kind of you stick with that, and if you go one path, you, you you're going that path, and it's fairly, especially if it's something that takes time to change, then you suddenly you don't have the time or or the budget for like from the money point of view or from the time point of view, you don't have it's. it's Difficult to change, exactly. Especially yeah. if if the management doesn't see the benefit, the the long the short term uh, investment, which it takes time and money to to build the pipeline and test it out and uh, and make sure it works properly. That takes time. Let's say it takes, I'm just, uh, let's say it takes a week. Just just a number. But if you're on a tight schedule, then one week of not being able to do any billable work might be something that you're not allowed to do. Yeah, it's executive sponsorship. It's kind of the way to go. It's the same with, with DevOps transformations. And another thing is that this doesn't maybe happen overnight. So, so you can start with kind of automating one part of the pipeline, um, let the others be there. Very often you already have an automated data pipeline. Mm -hmm. It should be easy to just plug in. So it's a, it's, a, it's a journey, but uh, hopefully um, anybody who goes on that journey will then see that there are benefits at the end. Exactly. All right. 
any any cool. last words? Um, nothing else except for for thanks to everybody who's been uh, watching. Uh, sorry about the uh, weird technical glitch we had there um, in the middle. Let's see, maybe we're going to edit this episode to make a. Yeah, maybe we just cut cut the weird part away and then. Yeah, it's going to be you doing that. Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> with, with my video uh, editing pipeline. Exactly. Very efficient and complete. Yeah. Thanks everybody to for for listening to us. I hope you um, enjoyed it. Please give us feedback in case you have any topics that you would like us to tackle or, or anything else that you would like us uh, like to say to us. Um, otherwise, we're going to see each other again um, next Saturday at 12 o'clock GMT, 13 CMT, 14 in Finland, and so on and so on and so on. So till then, bye. Bye-bye.